Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. We're also thrilled to announce that starting today, at least in the Kindle version, you can get uh, Jim Garrity's brand new book, Between Two Scorpions. We'll be talking about that quite a bit more later in the podcast. But as we kick off here today, Jim, congratulations. Thank you, Greg. And for we should clarify, you can also pre-order the paperback version today. And when uh, Greg says we'll be talking about this later in the podcast and for much of the rest of the year. <laughs> so don't worry if you missed part of today's podcast. It'll come up in future ones, I assure you. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. We start with the good martini, in addition to Jim being published once again. Uh, Let's start with a roll call. Republican State Representative Fred Keller easily defeated Democrat Mark Friedenberg in a special election Tuesday in Pennsylvania's 12th district. With 98% of precincts reporting, Keller led the Penn State professor 67.8% to 32.2%. The result was not unexpected, given that President Donald Trump would have carried the deep red seat by 36 points in 2016 under the current congressional lines. Trump traveled to the district Monday to boost the state lawmaker. He also recorded a robocall encouraging voters to support Keller and praised him in a tweet Tuesday. So it's a solid red district. But here's why the margin matters. This is from Harry Enten over at CNN. Over the nearly two-year period prior to the 2018 midterms, congressional Democratic candidates were regularly outperforming the 2016 presidential baseline. The average Democratic margin across 11 congressional elections was 12 points better than Clinton's margin in the same district. This included outperforming Clinton in nine of these 11 races. The question is whether the Pennsylvania 12 result is a fluke. It could be, but about 30 special legislative elections since the 2018 midterms suggest that something may very well have changed since last year. According to data collected by, yes, daily cost elections, Democrats have only been outperforming Clinton's margin by about three points heading into Tuesday night in these state legislative specials. So... Jim, we got a long way to go. Who knows where the momentum will be? My guess is both sides will be highly motivated come the fall of 2020. But uh, the fact that the numbers are looking more like they did in 2016 than they did in 2018 has to be a good sign for Republicans. Yeah. Uh, and of course, look, again, the, the big news is not that Republicans kept a seat. I think everybody pretty much expected this. Um, but the interesting thing is that this long streak of Democrats overperforming how they traditionally do in these special house elections has come to an end. And, and it's also I think, worth noting the oddity. Maybe this is what happens when your party wins the house and you're more focused on what's going on in Washington. Um, I wrote about it very briefly in the corner earlier this week. Beyond that, Greg, I didn't hear anything about this special house election. And for whatever reason, this special house election, and admittedly, a very deep red part of Pennsylvania, kind of the north central chunk of the state, rural, you know, this is Trump country. This is, you know, uh, maybe Democrats said, eh, you know what, this isn't worth it. We're not, we don't have a good shot here. It's not worth spending a lot of resources. For whatever reason, it did not catch fire amongst the nationwide progressive grassroots. Maybe the 2020 campaign is, a tr- is eating up a lot of the attention and media time and, and all of that. But having said that, if you're the Democrats, this is be a little the slightest rattle in the engine. Uh, this is the slightest indicator that your enthusiasm has gone back down to normal levels. And you want this to stay up as high as you possibly can. The other reason you could say it's, ah, okay, it's very deep Trump country, but it is Pennsylvania. Uh, this is going to be probably the, you know, one of the biggest and most focused states of the 2020 election. 
So if you're Democrats, you you want your maximized turnout everywhere. Um, and if you have this area where you really had nothing special in terms of turnout, right on par with normal for this area, um, after such a long stretch and having higher than usual turnout in places like Georgia and John Ossoff's race and, and all that, you know, Democrats were telling themselves they were building a 50-state campaign and we're going to be able to compete everywhere. They did not compete here. Uh, now, whether this is just one fluky race or whether it's a leading indicator, it's going to you know, require some time to tell. But uh, if you're the Republicans, there is kind of some good news to say, OK, the Rep Democrats do have limits to how much they can jazz up their base. Um, in this corner of Pennsylvania, they did not show up when they had, you know, presumably a better shot than usual at winning a seat like this. That was a special election because I believe a Republican got reelected and then immediately realized he didn't want to be in Congress anymore. So, uh, yeah, it was a combination of allegedly health reasons. And if so, I hope he, uh, he heals quick, but also opportunities in the private sector. So it's a principled reason. The <laughs> principle is he should be making more money. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine with people uh, chasing better career opportunities. But when you uh, commit to two years of public service, uh, that should carry some weight, too. Let's go to our bad martini now, Jim. And for those old enough to remember 9-11 and the earliest days of the war on terror, the name John Walker Lind ought to send a shiver down the spine. Uh, this is CNN. John Walker Lind, the so-called American Taliban, whose capture in Afghanistan riveted a country in the early days after the September 11th attacks, has been released from prison. After serving 17 years of a 20-year sentence, Lynn, the first U.S.-born detainee in the War on Terror, on Thursday walked out of a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, and will join the small but growing group of Americans convicted of terror-related charges attempting to re-enter society. Lind will live in Virginia. Oh, good. Subject to the direction of his probation officer, his lawyer Bill Cummings tells CNN, but some are already calling for an investigation into his time in prison, where he is said in two U.S. government reports to have made pro-ISIS and other extremist statements that could send him back into detention. Reports of Lind's maintained radicalization, detailed in two 2017 official counterterrorism assessments, are also driving questions about the efforts of the U.S. government to rehabilitate former sympathizers like him. So, Jim, sounds like Jihad Johnny is still just as radical as he ever was. And the big question here is, while you can't keep him in prison after his federal sentence has expired, why in the world are we letting this guy out early? When he got the 20-year sentence back in, as he was caught in 2001, sentencing was probably 2002, 2003, there was a sense of, okay, well, you know, I'm sure in our minds, that's a long time. Well, here we are, uh, approaching 18 years since 9-11, which just seems mind-boggling. Uh, and he's qualified for early release based on good behavior. Now, what I don't quite get, Greg, is how you can qualify for good behavior while apparently also radicalizing <laughs> other inmates yes. and pledging to return to jihadism as quickly as possible. The other thing was, you, you mentioned, you know, use the term American Taliban. It just kind of reminded me of something, Greg, because I know something we, we talked about, if you went deep into the archives of this podcast. Remember Alan Grayson? Sure. If you chose to forget forget him. I'll understand why. But you know, but he was this this you know, adamant, fervent, frothing at the mouth <laughs> liberal Democrat from Florida, uh, member of the House, who really enjoyed. You know, he was the one who said Republicans' health care plan is to die quickly. Yada yada yada. But he ran against a guy named Dan Webster, um, and the race could adequately described as you know the devil and Daniel Webster. Uh, but he said that you know Alan Grayson ran an attack ad against Dan Webster. It's called him Taliban Dam. And it really kind of dawned on me, like, you just kind of emphasize, you know, of course, that's over the top. Of course, that's out of bounds. Of course, that's far too incendiary rhetoric. I think the argument was that, uh, well, you know, Daniel Webster opposes abortion and so does the Taliban. Therefore, they're exactly a lot, you know, that kind of inane logic there. 
but yeah, I remember, you know, it's funny you mentioned, you know, uh, the Daily Coast's uh, uh, elections research earlier in this. Marcos Melitzis had made this argument. You know, the contention that the Christian right in the United States is the moral equivalent of the Taliban really is outrageous. Pat Robertson, at his absolute worst, is never throwing acid in the, in the faces of schoolgirls. Jerry Falwell is never killing people. Okay, you, you know, we, we've got our, you know, these guys are not perfect. They've got their flaws. There's no two ways about that. But this really should be out of bounds. And the contention that anybody for the audacity of disagreeing with you about politics belongs in the same moral category as a bunch of ruthless, bloodthirsty killers really ought to be, okay, this is a signifier. This person is not a serious person. Um, and it didn't. It was kind of a little more irritating. This is, yeah, I'm, I'm frustrated by this. I prefer to see Johnny Walker Lynn never see the outside of a prison. But if we're going to do it, then okay, fine. I understand there's all kinds of instructions about the, the idea of he's not allowed to use the computer, he's not allowed to visit jihadist sites or stuff like that. First of all, my assumption is he's going to break this. <laughs> you know, I call me crazy, Greg. I think a promise from Johnny Walker Lind is not all that worthwhile. But my assumption is, is that the National Security Agency and everything else that, uh, all the other different ways we have for covert surveillance of someone. We'll be watching this kid like, I guess he's not a kid anymore, watching this guy like a hawk. Uh, and kind of, I'd be very curious about who Johnny Walker Lind wanted to contact as soon as he got out of prison. I'd love to know who's been uh, uh, in touch with him. And so my suspicion is that he will be uh, thoroughly electronically scrubbed. By the way, if you want to know more about how the NSA can survey people, um, we, we've all seen the hacker scenes in movies and novels where they're. You know, and, and they just talk about it and they whip through it and it's just kind of treated as magic. And I really try to do at least a quick, without slowing down the action too much, explaining how the NSA can actually track these things. Um, worth noting, and this is in the book and this is, uh, uh, this is based in real life. This is not made up. So if you visit, say, the New York Times website, you're connecting to several servers at once when you do that. You go to the New York Times server, which is giving you uh, the headlines, the links, the articles, all that kind of stuff, the photos, stuff like that. Uh, the ads are coming from a separate server, uh, and usually it's tracked to your location or something like that. This is where cookies come into play. And there's another server which very often tells your web browser how to arrange it on the page, what kind of font to use if you don't have the font the website is using, um, all kinds of little kind of internal, you almost call it like metadata type stuff uh, that you're not seeing that's in the HTML code for the website. Oh, by the way, this other server that gets used, the NSA has figured out how to put in certain codes that then allows them to record your keystrokes. So if you visited the New York Times website or certain other news websites, uh, there's a good chance the NSA has the ability to track what you're typing into your computer and survey what, what sites you're visiting and stuff like that. Uh, now, of course, the good news is the NSA is full of wonderful people who would never abuse these kind of privileges. Greg, one of the fun things about writing a thriller is you don't have to worry about the civil libertarian aspects of the technology you're writing about. Because, you know, the good guys are the good guys. They're gonna, they're not, they'll never abuse these powers. So, uh, But anyway, so that's real. And my suspicion is if Johnny Walker Lynn doesn't, if every computer anywhere near Johnny Walker Lynn doesn't already have this type of surveillance code, my suspicion is that all of them will have it very soon. Um, so to me, that's the silver lining of what seems like a um, not fully thought out decision by, the, by our, our justice system. Well, let's talk a little bit more now about Between Two Scorpions. Uh, I believe this is the fourth book you've written. You had uh, Voting to Kill, and then you had uh, a very successful weed agency that we talked about quite a bit. And then, of course, Heavy Lifting, which we've referenced many times on here. So um, Between Two Scorpions is a different type of book for you. Uh, explain why you wrote it and uh, what folks can expect when they buy it. Sure. Uh, sheer emotional catharsis, people. Uh... <laughs> I've had the idea for these characters for a long time. My guess is a lot of readers will see that the influences on me. 
Firefly, you know, the, the wacky Mission Impossible alias. Anytime you've got kind of the, the, the wacky team of misfits, uh, the, the folks who have you a bunch of people, everybody's got one thing they're good at and probably some sort of offsetting weakness or, or challenge or, or aspect of them where they're not perfect for the mission. The idea of you put all these people together and each one has some sort of gift or talent or thing that makes them capable of, of pulling together and achieving the mission. The first draft I was just started in 2015. This is not overtly a political book, but there's a lot of me in it, which means if you're looking for it, you'll, you might see some things. One of the ideas I played with was the idea of, you know, like you're thinking about terrorism, you think about the post 9-11 world, you think about the sort of things that keep us frightened and keep us scared. And by the way, when I was first writing this, things like San Bernardino were going on, things like Orlando were going on, uh, the Bataclan attacks and over in Paris. And so the question is, you know, we think about jihadist terrorism as bad as it is, and it's pretty darn bad. These people don't really understand Western culture. They don't really understand what makes us tick. They, they, you know, Al Qaeda thought knocking over the Twin Towers was going to destroy the American economy. You know, and I thought about what would happen if there was an enemy who really took the time to understand America, who really figured out how to press our buttons, who knew what we were afraid of, and what would stir up fear and anger and paranoia and an inclination to lash out at our fellow citizens. Um, and this, you know, uh, as the political environment has changed year to year since I first started this project, it's only become even more resonant for that. So, uh, you know, I try to think about what what scares me uh, when putting together these villains. And it was, you know, it's terrorism, it's school shooters, it's um, uh, it's psychos and, and it's spiders, Greg. Um, <laughs> there are there there are lots of snakes and spiders and critters and animals. And there, there's very much an element of Indiana Jones and uh, nature is out to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> that feeling if you for everyone who's ever gone camping and had terrible experiences with fire ants and stuff like that this is a you know, there are scenes in this book that are ju- designed to make you terrified of going outdoors well you're not so. kidding this really is a catharsis for you isn't it? <laughs> it is you know, and, and so hopefully it doesn't turn into people saying wow this is a great book and not so much wow jim needs therapy <laughs> And I will say, uh, Jim was kind enough to share a little bit of the book with me uh, yesterday. It does not take you long to get hooked. I was hooked right away. I'd say uh, you're in the middle of the plot about as fast as you are in Die Hard 3. It, <laughs> it starts right away. And so you're in it uh, and you're hooked. And uh, it's great writing. So please, Between Two Scorpions, uh, get it on Amazon now. Pre-order the hard copy or get it on the Kindle uh, right now. So be, be doing that. And uh, as Jim said, we'll be mentioning uh, the book quite a bit uh, coming up. Let's get to our crazy martini now, Jim. And speaking of villains, let's talk about Michael Avenatti. He, of course, uh, gained fame as the attorney for adult film performer Stephanie Clifford, also known as Stormy Daniels. But now that relationship, well, let's just say when Stormy Daniels said a few weeks ago that she'd have more to say about Michael Avenatti, I think we now know what she meant. NBC News. Federal prosecutors filed additional charges against high-profile attorney Michael Avenatti on Wednesday claiming the frequent White House critic pocketed almost $300,000 from former client Stormy Daniels. Daniels was owed money from a book deal, and Avenatti allegedly used a fraudulent document purporting to bear his client's name and signature to convince his client's literary agent to divert money owed to Avenatti's client to an account controlled by Avenatti, according to a statement by federal prosecutors. A senior federal law enforcement official told NBC News that victim one who was allegedly bilked by Avenatti, is Stephanie Clifford, otherwise known by her stage name, Stormy Daniels. The publisher gave money to Daniels' agent, and the former adult film star was supposed to receive two payments of $148,750, according to the indictment. But Avenatti had the money sent to funds that he controlled. The U.S. attorney in this case is Jeffrey Berman, Southern District of New York, who says, quote, 
As alleged, he used his position of trust to steal in advance on the client's book deal. As alleged, he blatantly lied to and stole from his client to maintain his extravagant lifestyle, including to pay for, among other things, a monthly car payment on a Ferrari. Far from zealously representing his client, Avenatti, as alleged, instead engaged in outright deception and theft, victimizing rather than advocating for his client. Avenatti quickly responding, saying on Twitter, no monies relating to Ms. Daniels were ever misappropriated or mishandled. She received millions of dollars worth of legal services, and we spent huge sums in expenses. She directly paid only $100 for all that she received. I look forward to a jury hearing the evidence. So, Jim, I don't think either of us are exactly shocked by this. So what do you make of uh, Michael Avenatti basically ripping off the person who made him famous? Not surprising <laughs> in the sense that her complaints uh, and hints in this direction were pretty clear. Uh, I don't know about you. I, I actually feel I, I, this is this is not sarcasm. I really feel bad for Stormy Daniels. I do. I do, too. Uh, that, that she really does seem to always end up involved with men who do not have her best interest at heart uh, and who are interested in manipulating her for their own gain. Um, this is, you know, look, she, you know, whatever you think of, of her, you know, she earned that advance and she earned that money uh, from the publisher by herself. And, and Alvin, I basically committed thievery and, and robbery to get it. Now, what's I think is really kind of jumping out of, we were discussing this earlier today at National Review and had the observation. When you hear that, say, you know, Charlie Rose is a creepy sex perv, um, that's kind of surprising. That's not fitting with the, you know, even tone gentleman we saw on, on PBS all those years. But Avenatti, I mean, everybody seemed to have this guy pegged from, from day one. The moment he popped up on the national uh, stage and the cable news networks, and he basically stayed at the national news networks, sleeping on the couch, it seemed, popping up on them on more hours and more frequently than Anderson Cooper. <laughs> that, you know, he came across as this slimy, untrustworthy, ambulance-chasing lawyer, um, the exact opposite of a person you would trust and all that stuff. There was kind of this bizarre aspect of it. Oh, who's this guy? Oh, he's the lawyer for the porn star who's suing the president. And somehow from this, he genuinely got people believing, hey, this is the kind of guy we need to run for president. <laughs> um, so I think you and I and a good chunk of people on the right can say, look, we, you know, for whatever our flaws, we were never fooled by this guy. We always saw him clearly. And there was a kind of a really bizarre um, psychological denial and just projection onto him uh, that he was uh, Perry Mason or, or some sort of great lawyer uh, when in fact he was clearly this showboat who was, uh, uh, un you know, you could trust about as far as you could throw him. Yeah, exactly. And so, of course, whenever these moments arise, we like to point out to the media that they basically lapped up every word he ever said, hardly challenged him on anything. He was on TV ubiquitously uh, with CNN and MSNBC. So here's a couple of clips uh, just to point out the fawning. This is reliable sources, quote unquote, with Brian Stelter and Stelter explaining why he took at the time Avenatti's uh, likely presidential campaign seriously. I don't know if it's a good thing that star power and TV uh, savvy is required for the job, but I think it is. And, and by the way, I think President Obama also had a lot of TV star power and that helped him pre-Trump. Uh, but Trump is more evidence of this. And looking ahead to 2020, uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. Well, there you go. He was also a guest one day on The View. And uh, Ana Navarro, who claims to be a Republican, was on there along with uh, Joy Behar. Uh, Ana Navarro had a very weird comparison. And then Joy Behar took it from there. Lately to me, you're like the Holy Spirit. You are... Oh. <laughs> 
all places <laughs> at all times, right? <laughs> I mean, you, I, I do. I see you all over cable news. I see you. You know, there is a, a, a seat available if you want to be a co-host at the View. You might. You know, there's people here you can pitch. <laughs> He'd make a great lady around the table. <laughs> no, but um, so, and I see, and I have the same issue with Giuliani. He's everywhere. Like I, and so I, I question myself when I see Giuliani. Once I, I see you on TV so much. When do you have time to be lawyering, to be doing like real lawyering? Because you're in, I mean, you're representing, you know, migrants, he, you're representing. But he has a great, bigger calling here. That being a lawyer is minimal compared to what he's doing. The priesthood? What a, whatever. He's out there saving the country. Yeah, we should listen to these people, Jim. So two observations there, Greg. The first is that can we, can we now declare officially presence on cable news is not a reason to take someone seriously <laughs> as a candidate for president of the United States. Can we set that bar a little bit higher? Because, um, I mean, I, I'm on cable news every now and then. I should not be taken seriously as a president for the United States. Uh, Kathy Griffin was doing that New Year's Eve with CNN for a lot of time. Doesn't he have them? You know, I would say Pierce Morgan, but he's not a U.S. citizen. But, you know, like, do you realize what it requires to be a talking head, Greg? To have a head that talks? You got it. Yeah, you beat me to the punchline. <laughs> yes, right? You know, that's basically all. It's a, and the job of the president is a lot more than being a head on talk, who talks on television. Uh, and then finally, when uh, Navarro compares Avenatti to the Holy Spirit, look, Greg, you know, she only missed it by 180 degrees. <laughs> he was actually working for the other side the whole time, so. Well, it once again just goes to prove that uh, in addition to talking heads being taken seriously, if you are an adversary of Trump, most of the mainstream media will champion you regardless of how corrupt and how obviously sleazy you are. And I mean, it doesn't yeah, matter I, who I, you I are. I like to say to the Navarros of the world, I mean, like, there are a lot of people who would just, just scream at them and call them names and, and all that. And, you know, yeah, they, they deserve a, a decent amount of criticism for you know, the way they reacted to Avenatti, which, oh, by the way, according to the Vanity Fair article, uh, at the same time Avenatti was getting relentless attention by cable news, he was like berating the bookers yes. and obnoxious to the staff and things like that. Uh, I mean, according to this, he's just a full spectrum, horrible human being. And uh, I think if you are, you know, first of all, if you have a show, I think one of your jobs is to stand up for your people. If somebody's being abusive to your staff, abusive to the bookers and all that kind of stuff, I don't understand why you invite somebody back. I, I think that's, you know, I think you're, you're entitled to enforce that uh, behavioral standard there. Uh, but the second thing is, is that just because someone is quote unquote on your side, doesn't mean you have to defend them. Doesn't mean you have to believe in them. Doesn't mean you have to put them up on a pedestal. It's okay to say, you know what? I really can't stand Donald Trump. I think he, uh, I think he totally did what, St what Stormy Daniels claims. I think there totally were payoffs. I think the whole thing was sleazy. Whether you know, even if it didn't violate FEC law. But no, I'm not. I'm not pulling for Avenatti. He's not a good guy. The fact that you know, that sometimes you have to accept that stories don't have heroes. Sometimes you have to accept that you know you can have one bad guy fighting another bad guy, and it doesn't mean that you have to pull for one. You know, you put this on the heels of Beto. You put this on the heels of arguably the Parkland students, the the Covington teens. You know, story after story where the media sees something happen. Uh, and they just kind of hammer it until it fits into a narrative. Uh, you know, I think it was Vogue sent Annie Leibovitz, <laughs> you know, arguably the most famous photographer of the world, to take pictures of Avenatti, and they made him look like he's got the weight of the world. Oh, come on. See him clearly. That's all I'm asking of people in the media. Um, and my suspicion is, is that if you see the world clearly, you'll still see plenty of evidence to believe what you want to believe. But please, don't, don't go so far as to tell us that Avenatti is the Holy Spirit. Like this, out of all the things that have ever been said on television, that one really should belong to the Hall of Fame 
of, of most cringe-inducing. That was absurd. And the wreckage, the wreckage of lives in Michael Avenatti's past now is just it's like a pile up on the interstate. I mean, clients just stolen from all over the place. Uh, he used and abused cable news, although they were willing to be used and abused. And then, as you mentioned uh, very eloquently before, Stormy Daniels, uh, obviously a victim, because uh, I'm guessing he didn't pay the court cost <laughs> when she lost the case against Trump. I'm guessing she probably had to pay that. So, um what a mess. Jim? Uh, I was going to say, this is one of the, just one last point. I don't know about you, Greg. I, you know, I, you know, knocking on wood, I have not been sued. I hope to never be sued. But you figure, you know, fighting a lawsuit would be like be a major, major complication in your life. Major financial stress. Maybe you scrape together the funds. You know, it would be ex- expensive to fight even if you won. And, and this guy gets fines left and right, and he just doesn't pay them. <laughs> Like, like, at what point do you start, you know, when do you deploy Samuel Gerard and start tracking down this guy? You know, can, can, we, can we get somebody off the, the hunt for uh, for Attorney General Barr and, and put him onto a guy who's actually failing to pay his fines and stuff? I mean, I, I know we've decided Sharpton's never going to have to pay his fines. I mean, as much as I don't like it, there's an empty cell in Terre Haute, Indiana. Maybe it's got Michael Avenatti's name on it. Jim, <laughs> we'll see. See you tomorrow. Okay, maybe that's an okay trade. <laughs> <laughs> they both need to be in there. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget, Between Two Scorpions, Amazon.com right now. And join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.